Yeah. Not, not, not the TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. And welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, or in the case of this episode, movie reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host. And I'm Nico. This week we're going to be talking, or taking an in-depth look at Toy Story 3, and also the blockbuster AT. But before we get things started, I'd like to make an announcement that we're taking a survey of our listeners, and we'd like you to participate. And basically, it's going to help us learn more about you, our podcast listeners, and what you want to get out of our podcast, as well as finding us the sponsor for this podcast, because it's not cheap to run. Please take a few minutes and visit our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. You'll find the listener survey link right on the home page on the right-hand side, and you can complete the survey anonymous. So for those of you who've done it, we've had two people so far. Thanks for the rest of our listeners. I know there are a lot of you out there. Please jump on the website and fill out our survey. It would really help us out. So without further ado, we're going to talk about Toy Story 3, another home run for Pixar, and it had the best opening for an animated and Pixar film. You got a friend in me. You got a friend in me. Woody, Buzz, and the whole gang are back. As their owner Andy prepares to depart for college, his royals toys find themselves in daycare where untamed tots with their sticky little fingers do not play nice. So it's all for one and one for all as they plan their great escape. And right off the bat, this was a great movie. Might be the best of the summer. I, I don't want to say for sure because of Inception, Christopher Nolan's big film coming out, which is going to be probably pretty impressive knowing his track record. But this was a great movie, and it was a great capper, I thought, to a very well-laid-out trilogy. I don't think Toy Story was planned on being a trilogy at all, but it turned out, in the end, being very extremely well-laid-out. And I was able to see that through actually going to see all three Toy Story movies in a row. They played them at our theater in 3D. So I got to experience all three movies in a row and really got to take a really good look at them. And seeing it on screen, it really helps to capture like a lot of the world of these toys and kind of what they go through and deal with. And in terms of how this trilogy was laid out, the first movie did a really great job of introducing a toy sphere of losing the child they were designed to make happy or pay attention to them. And Woody constantly says throughout all three movies that it's their job to be there for their owner, Andy, and make him happy. Throughout the course of the first movie, as probably most of you know, Buzz Lightyear comes up and challenges Woody's place under the attention of his owner, Andy. And the second movie played up that fear a little bit more through the idea of not Woody having a toy to compete with, but Woody dealing with the fact that he was getting old and he may get broken and be destroyed. 
And the third movie kind of resolved this issue by Woody's hard work as a toy being paid off. How that worked in terms of the movie was he was given by Andy, who truly did care for him, to a girl that would respect him in the same way that Andy did throughout his entire life. And I think that this, all three movies did a very good job of telling that story and really helping us understand what it was like to be a toy. Nico, where are you with this? Did you think it was a well-laid-out trilogy? I did. I'm going to discuss a little bit later some of the, the issues I had with this final third film. But all in all, it, 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 it's a great trilogy, great screenwriting throughout the whole thing. And really, I, I loved all three movies, so I want to get that out in the beginning before I bring up some of the issues I have later. Okay. Well, this film was interesting. I A lot of people thought with two that that was going to be it. And I've read several reviews that said the way the second film ended with Woody kind of accepting this fact that Andy was going to outgrow him, but it was all right because he had Buzz and the other toys there with him. They thought that was a great way to end things. But then, you know, three came out and they had to come up with a new plot line. And this one was, was kind of, yes, Woody did accept that Andy was going to outgrow him, especially the fact that he was preparing the toys to be put up in the attic, and that was okay. Then it kind of got put to the test when Woody got what he always wanted, and that was Andy choosing him over Buzz. Andy wanted to take Woody to college and leave Buzz behind. And so the fact that Woody got that, when he's wanted for 15 years now at this point it was huge for him and that's why it during throughout the course of the movie he is so desperately wanted to get back to andy the whole time because he wanted to have that moment of glory so bad and this movie was about woody realizing maybe that's not what necessarily he needs and maybe that's not what his existence as a toy is all about absolutely it was a a, a character study in woody and finding his priorities whether it was being the top dog or the top toy from now on, or if it was taking care of his friends and, and the rest of the, the toys that had always looked up to him as their leader, and really keeping that group together. And it was great how we saw an evolution of Woody, as we've seen in the previous movies, but this one was, I think, more profound. It was very deep. And it, interesting enough, I mean, this is a toy... A child's plaything! But he had qualities that we could all relate to. Choosing between family and career and ego and things like that, that's things that's universal that everyone has to deal with. I thought that was really great in this film that they gave these toys... I mean, it still existed within the toy universe, and it was real problems toys would have to deal with, but it was also something all of us watching the film could relate to, too and have a strong connection with Woody. Absolutely. That's what's made these three films such great films, is that not only are they kids' films, but adults and teens and old people, I don't know the proper term for that. You are a sad, strange little man. Uh, but it, it spans the whole spectrum of, of the population, from very young kids to grandparents they can all get behind this movie and find something enjoyable, but also find a clear message that relates to them. And I think you, you summed that up perfectly. And another thing that keeps the adults interested, and it's a big part of all three films, and it was, again, in this movie, was the comedy 
and this felt. Toy Story is known for having great one-liners. What are you looking at, the hockey puck? And I thought this film lived up to the expectations of those one-liners that came with the first film. Absolutely. My favorite comedic moment from the movie, when Buzz got switched into Spanish mode. That, that was just clean fun and, and funny, and I know you had an issue with it for a while, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I, I thought it was hilarious. And then my favorite one-liner from the, the whole movie was a Mr. Potato Head quote, and he's, it's at the very end, and he, he's playing at, at Bonnie's house. All of a sudden, something starts rattling inside of him, and his, his back flap opens up, and he says, I told you kids to stay out of my butt. <laughs> that was just a funny line that I wasn't expecting, and so it made me laugh, and it, it, it was my favorite one-liner of the movie. Well, you know, when you have a, a comic genius like Don Rickles working in a film, I mean, of course you could have fun with that. Absolutely. And of course he could set things up like that and make pretty much whatever you throw at him funny. And Mr. Potato Head, I think he was my favorite comedic character in this film. I really enjoyed Rex in Toy Story 2 with the whole concept of him wanting to beat Zerg in the video yeah. game. And that was great. But this movie, I felt, was more... The lines and the comedy was more given to Mr. Potato Head. Especially with the many faces of Mr. Potato Head we got to see in this film. Look, I'm Picasso! We had Mr. Cucumber Head, and we had Mr. Tortilla Head. And that was hilarious, especially when he's a tortilla and the bird starts eating him. Yeah. That was yeah. just, that was gold. It was great. It was very creative. And Pixar, I think, as a whole, in terms of their writing, does a really good job of taking concepts and jokes and comedies like that and just making them very... It's like the jokes are so simple that it's creative that they come up with them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Okay. Because it is. It's just so simple that you're sitting in the theater like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, they're, they're not complex jokes that take a t long time to set up. Right. It, in any sense of the matter. But they're still laugh-out-loud hilarious. Ham is always good for a, a good one-liner as well. Yes. Uh, all right, nobody look till I get my cork back in. And he had a few in this one. And there was a line about him wanting Barbie's Corvette because she was going to get taken to the daycare. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a pretty good one. And also, um, when he's like, it's Mr. Dr. Evil, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that, that's just so random that I was like, what? <laughs> Well, was it that was it that a throwback to Mr. Potato Head? I think so. Yeah, wasn't it? Is it's Mr. Potato Head to you? And I also like the idea of that the new character they introduced, Trixie the dinosaur, that was the Triceratops. Yeah, her using the internet. Yeah, and being in the chat room and stuff. And my thought process on that one was that Rex that she was chatting with. I think it was the Velociraptor down the street, okay. but it could have been it could have been Rex because they they have that scene at the end where the, the two of them yeah. are are playing a game on the internet and like kind of doing the twister routine. <laughs> so yeah, it could it could very well have been Rex. Now, what did you think of the whole Barbie Ken thing? Okay, it's funny. But they were, I felt like they were sending sexually ambiguous signals with Ken, and it was funny for a while, but at the same time got old pretty quick. And I'm not sure that Pixar 
should be making gay or even metrosexual jokes, even about Ken. It was funny, like I said, and when they were teasing Ken about being a girl's toy, I, I laughed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not a girl's toy. Yeah, of course you are. Um, but at the same time, it, it's, it's towing that line of being almost prejudiced. So it was funny, but at the same time, it might be sending the wrong message. I'm not sure where I stand on that because I laughed. You know, I can't yeah. say that I didn't laugh, especially when Barbie was in the space suit and was talking to the bookworm and starts walking away and he notices she's in high heels and we have that moment of dread that it's going to foil the whole thing yeah. and then he's like, eh, it, you know, figures. The part I thought was funny about it, and I'll get back to gay references with Ken, but uh, I thought that the scene with Barbie where she tricks him into bringing her back to the Barbie dream house or whatever it is. Yeah, the dream house. Yeah, he brings her back, and I, I loved it how, number one, she outsmarted him, which was great. That was hilarious. And then number two, I loved that scene where she was almost torturing him by ripping his clothes in half. Yeah. Like, that that was funny, and I liked the idea that they did make Barbie a ditzy blonde, kind of Barbie standing up for her rights. So that was good. Because you could really get a little degrading to women almost with the Barbie concept. So I'm glad that they kind of went with that. But as for the whole Ken joke thing, the situation with this movie, at least from what I was reading about it, is they were really trying to gear it towards people around our age, which is within our within our 20s. Yeah. Because we grew up with it. So I think they were trying to do that joke to give us something to laugh about and be entertained with. And I don't know if that was the right way to go. I, I agree with you on that. But I think that's what they were trying to do, is they were trying to add more adult jokes and more of that to get our attention because that's what their audience that they were going for. And it did work. That was the audience that showed up because I was there at midnight and it was packed with people from probably 16 and older was our audience at the midnight showing and it was packed. I couldn't tell you how many people from that age range were there. So I, I get why they chose to go that route because... That is a lot, a big part of the humor that they exposed that age range to. But at the same time, yeah, it's, it's a little borderline racist. And I'm surprised they took that risk, especially it being Disney at all. But again, Disney's been accused of being racist or degrading or whatever many times before. Sure. And I'll talk a little bit about the Buzz personality change. I know, Nico, you really liked it thought it was very funny. At first, I was turned off by it because I felt like it's this thing that they had to do, and it's a kind of a trend in all three movies, that they have to mess with Buzz's head for some reason for his character to be funny. Like, in terms of Toy Story 2, they had to come up with a way to revert Buzz back to his thinking he was a space ranger to make more jokes happen. So what they did in Toy Story 2 is they just took another Buzz out of the toy store and replaced him with the Buzz Lightyear that we knew from the first film. You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear, you're, a, uh, you're an action figure! Just right. so you could continue the Space Ranger jokes. And I thought at first that the him going back to Space Ranger in 3, again, was just to create more jokes. 
and then I thought the Spanish thing was just to take it even farther. And I was like, Buzz, I want to see his personality and humor created from him. But then when they did the whole thing with him romancing Jesse and her having the whole thing, her turning on the salsa music at the end of the movie and stuff like that, that was hilarious. So when they went there with it, it was really great, and I loved that kind of the toy romance thing. That was a lot of fun. But before that, I was like, what are they doing here? This is, I just feel like that they're just trying to create jokes out of Buzz where there might not be any, if that makes sense. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from on that. I just love the Spanish mode. When he, they switched him over to the original mode, that's when I thought it was just a plot device to kind of turn him into a guard like they did and keep the other toys in line. And I could see that purely as a, a plot device and then a need for redemption later. Right. So that was just moving the story forward. I didn't have a real problem with it, but when they switched him into the Spanish mode and <laughs> he started romancing Jesse, like he said, I couldn't get enough of that. That was funny. And I, I did like at the end when they start doing the tango. Yes. But I love it when Jesse says goodbye to Woody when they think he's going to go to college with Woody. And he goes, are you going to be all right, Jesse? And she's like, it's fine. I, I know how to turn on Buzz's Spanish mode. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. That cracked me yeah. up. I was like, yes, that's, that's <laughs> really cool. I'm glad they had some romance in there. In the first five minutes of the movie, they kind of made me a little nervous when they said Bo Peep wasn't going to be around. Yeah. Because I liked some of those gags with her that they did with her and Woody. So I was like, uh-oh, where are they going to go? And then the Jesse Buzz thing made up for it, so I was glad with that. The next thing with it, I don't know. I don't want to say this was a problem with the movie, because I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really great film, and there were a lot of great entertaining moments that I think this makes it a movie everyone can see. But it did get a little dark for kids at some point, especially revolving around the Lazzo villain. He's like an evil, almost religious cult leader that's trying to swindle you out of money. And I really had that vibe for him. And I, I don't know, I, I think that was a little... I don't know, it made me uncomfortable. It really did. I am not sure necessarily why I felt that way, but it made me uncomfortable. I'm like, this is a kid's movie. I don't know if we need to go all dark religious cult there. And the daycare center felt a lot like a concentration camp. And those are some dark themes to throw in there. And it probably went right over the kids' head. But I was sitting there like, whoa, I, I don't know. Some of these things would have probably made me uncomfortable when I was a kid. That's at least what I thought in my mind. Nico, where were you kind of with that? I agree that it got a little dark at Sunnyside, but it, it, that allowed for it to be set up as an escape movie in the vein of such great escape films right. as The Great Escape, Escape from Alcatraz, and my favorite, Shawshank Redemption. Yes. Toy Story 3 was indeed that same kind of prison escape movie, or at least it had a major prison escape scene. And this prison escape scene was essentially the action climax of the film, if you extend it along to the dump, because that's all part of the escape in my mind. That's what I thought, too. Okay. A Toy Story 3 is a great film because we see the characters in true mortal peril in that oh, dump yeah. scene. This is not something we usually see in animated kids' movies. Think about Up or WALL-E. Really, at no point in either of those movies do we really feel that 
it might be the end for any of the characters and they might actually die. Now, we're concerned in those movies that something bad might happen to them, but we're not worried that they're going to be destroyed or killed. Toy Story 3 does just that in the action climax of this film at the dump. Right before the scene where the claw saves them, the characters all hold hands and essentially accept their fate that they're going to die. That was really powerful. A very powerful scene for me. Uh, I'm not sure if it had the same impact on you, but for me, that was like, whoa, this is not just your average kid's movie. This is really speaking to those of us who grew up on Toy Story and now are adults and need a little more out of the story. So I loved that part of this film. Well, you had to go there. You had to go that route because you had you had a, a sequel there. You had Toy Story 2, which did have a tearjerker moment. That's the one scene where Jesse gets left behind by the girl she grew up with. That, yes. that scene is very emotional. And so for a part three, you've got to raise the stakes. And that was the way to raise the stakes on that scene. Plus, you know... It worked great for the end of the film because seeing them almost die, that made the reasons why you love these characters come to mind. So then when they're given away at the end, it really caps off on those feelings. Yes. So it was a really great device to play with and challenge emotions. And I think it's a great way to end something. A great example would be Serenity. There's this, If you, any of you see that movie... I essentially view it as the last episode of the TV series Firefly. And there's a scene in that movie where you think that any of the characters could die at that one point. And it made the intensity and the end of it so much more powerful and so much more intense and so much more exciting. I mean, you were literally glued to the screen because you're like, I really like these characters from this show. I don't want them to die. And even before that, they killed off a major character. So you're like, oh my god, these people are really in trouble. And I think Toy Story did that same route. My only question is, do you think it was scary for a kid to see that? Or do you think it went over their heads? It was scary in the same sense that they were worried about them surviving. But I don't think it was enough to give kids nightmares. And that's what—that's okay. the, the fine line you have to, to tread with, with kids' movies and making them a little bit action-packed, but not scary enough or, or, or worrisome enough that it's going to give kids nightmares. And I think that they, they towed that line like champions. Okay. And do you think kids were picking up on what was going to happen? How so? Like, do you think they picked up on, oh my god, these toys are going to die here? I think that they felt that they were they were in trouble, but no, I don't think that they caught okay. the same level of understanding when all of them start holding hands and kind of just give up, in a sense, right before the claw comes. So I think there's, with many of these kids' movies, there are multiple levels in them, not only in the comedy, but in the storytelling. And like we said before, all age groups can get something out of it. This was more of the adult storyline portion. It was more action-packed for the kids. And the other thing, it was it was very, that scene was very visual. It was all facial reactions. It and was. I don't think kids have enough attention span 
to pick up on all that. Yeah, I don't want to belittle the understanding and the ability of children to pick up facial cues and things of that nature, because some kids are very adept at it, yeah. and they know what's going on in the household, even if nothing has been said. So I don't want to belittle their understanding. But, but at the same time, in a movie, a lot of times they don't pick up on all the little visual cues. And the other thing is, Pixar, regardless of kind of what they were going to do with this movie, they knew they were going to be successful. They're a, a studio in a position that they can take big risks and make big choices like that or play up the drama a little bit more adult-like because they've proven to be successful in the past. And it was Toy Story 3. I, I can't say... I mean, there are tons of people that were excited to see this movie. So I think they felt very safe going into this movie that they were going to make money kind of regardless of what they did or what was going to happen. And the other thing is you've got to wrap it up. You've got to end your series properly. And there's been so many part threes that have fallen flat on their face. Pixar almost had to get ballsy with this movie just to make sure that their fans were happy and they didn't crash and burn at the end. So I have to give them credit for that. Yeah, you definitely have to give them credit for taking the chances that they did. It's a, it's a part three, and I think they took the liberties that they needed to with it, and they reminded us why we love the characters, which we'll get into a little bit as we as we go on. But all I have to say is thank God for that claw. <laughs> down and save yes. at the end. That was the ultimate capper on that joke. Yes, I, it was. I didn't think you could take it much farther. I mean, I thought after the first one, the, the claw, that was it. That's all they could do with it. But the fact that they went this extreme and had the aliens save them. You have saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. And they pretty much summed up all the jokes with the aliens from Toy Story 1 and 2 with that moment. That was great. And it was so creative. And I, I didn't see it coming. I did not expect it. Because I got caught in the emotions so much. But that claw came. I was like, oh, yes. That is so awesome. Now, did you have any ind- indication that the claw was going to come down and do that, Nico? Or kind of we should have we should have seen it coming. We absolutely should have seen it coming because not three minutes before that, they foreshadowed it when they arrived at the dump and the the alien toys said that claw, and so they they brought it up. But we, you're absolutely right. We got so sucked into the moment that we completely. Forgot it. At least I did. I don't know about every movie viewer, but I when I was in it, I was lost in the moment. And that, that, I was not expecting. I was not. I heard it, but I was not thinking it. And that's not a skill you would expect to come from an animation company that's primarily known for doing kids' films. That, exactly. That's a concept that a lot of television shows and films, especially to part three, had difficulty doing. They played the emotions and everything right, and I mean that's that's awesome. I mean, hats off to them for that. Absolutely, it sucked me in, and that's kind of the whole thing. I mean, this movie worked because it played upon our love for the characters, and really credit for this goes to the screenwriters of the original film, which includes our man Joss Whedon. A lot of those characters in that film, in the first film, because I did watch it recently, they're really well developed. And they take the time to develop each of their characters and kind of make a joke or a gimmick that applies 
to each of their characters. Very much so in the light that Joss Whedon does with his TV series and things like that. So you felt his stamp and his presence on each of the characters in each of the films. You know, you had Woody, who was the leader of the toys. You had Rex, who was the timid T-Rex, which is something you don't see a lot. You had Mr. Potato Head, who fell apart all the time. You had Buzz, who thought he was a space ranger. And I don't, I don't really know how to... Slinky was kind of Woody's buddy. I don't really know how to apply Ham. He was just kind of the master of one-liners, is what he was. The fact that they did really good archetypes for toys in that first movie, I think is what made us have such a strong connection at the end of this movie and really be emotional when they thought that they were going to die. Yeah, absolutely. It was our love of these characters over three movies that just absolutely, like I was saying in that last bit uh, about the claw scene, sucked us into the storyline and really made us feel for these characters and really root for them again and and love them again and really get sucked into this movie and love it just as much as the first two experiences. Now, do you agree with me on the idea that they, these characters have very well-developed archetypes? Yeah, absolutely. We were talking about Ham, and you're not really sure what, what role he filled. He was the sidekick role in the sense that he was the comic relief in, in, in a lot of these films. Even though the whole thing is a comedy, right. there, he was, his one-liners were the, the epitome of that lovable sidekick that is good for an occasional one-liner. Although in this film, it was every scene he had <laughs> something to say. Way to go, Idaho! Woody was the, the, the classic strong leader but had some foibles he, he wanted to be. He had the ego that was getting in his way. In all three films, he had to deal with that. Had to take care of his his family, his team, his his group, the rest of the toys, however you want to describe them. He had to do that and get out of his own way and let his ego get out of the way. So, yeah, I mean, every character fits some sort of archetype. And that's why... We have three excellent films instead of a, a great film, a subpar follow-up, and a, an atrocious third movie that was only out for money, like we see in so many other trilogies. This was more like a Star Wars trilogy, maybe even better in a sense of writing that the third movie was not as much of a fall-off from the second movie. Right. So... The characters are what made this movie and this trilogy great. I think another part of that was they played the nostalgia factor to the extreme. Absolutely. The film had the exact same opening shot as the first film. That was very interesting that they went that way. And then, of course, they went with the classic, You've Got a Friend in Me. They've had different renditions of the song, but they went with the original rendition for the first film, they went with that. They had the whole movie feel. Even the opening where it was this kind of fun, imaginary sequence, they referenced stuff that we loved about those scenes where Andy was playing with the toys. You know, they referenced the barrel of monkeys. We need more monkeys! There aren't any more! There's that one scene with Bo Peep where Andy's playing with her in the first movie and he says, how is she going to die by one-eyed Pete? Is it going to be shark or barrel of monkeys? 
And so they took that to the extreme where Ham comes down with that spaceship and drops the barrel of monkeys on them. And then they played up their roles as the villains. Dr. Porkchop was something from Toy Story 2 that they referenced back to. And One-Eyed Bart was something that they referenced from the first Toy Story. Tailhead was that villain. Cool that they had that. And also that the movie started off kind of where we did leave off at Toy Story 2. With Andy as the kid and his sister coming in and destroying the scene he set up that he was playing with with the toys. So it was interesting to see all three films started out the same way. They took us right back into that atmosphere. And then they introduced the problem after that. I thought that was a really good maneuver on their part. Not only that, it got us... That first scene, like you said, it was a throwback to the first two movies and essentially sucked the audience right into the film, got us invested in the film right away. And from that point on, it went into the rest of the, the new film. But because they threw back to the old films, those of us who had not seen it in years got sucked right back into that storyline and knew exactly where we were. And that was great. Exactly. And the thing is, they teach us at Columbia, where I went to school in terms of script writing, they teach us that you've got to address the conflict and the theme of the story within the first page of the script. And I think they did that perfectly in this film. And it wasn't even a writing device. It was more of a visual audio device, which was they went through the basic, you've got a friend of me and sang the song. And they just before they got to the line where it says, our friendship will never die, the film cuts out and it goes completely black. Saying, uh-oh, this, this is what's going to be put at conflict in this film is Woody's friendship with Andy. And as well as the film continued, his friendship with the other toys as well. So I thought that was really great that they really just hit it on the head and said, this is what this movie's about and we're going to go from here. That's what I have to say. Toy Story 3 and Pixar in general, they know good filmmaking and writing techniques. And they are very... They're like almost textbook on what you should do to make a great film. And I really hope that if we do have any film school instructors or whatever listening to this program, I hope that they use these Pixar films as examples and references on what you should do by writing because they do an excellent job. Okay. Did I take your words out of your mouth there, Nico? Or No, <laughs> no I agree with what you were saying. You said it perfectly. Going on is an interesting example I'm going to go with on this one. But a show that I watch on a weekly basis is The Office. And they did one episode. It was the big Pam and Jim wedding episode. For those of you who haven't seen it, there's a romance, office romance between the characters Jim and Pam. And they get married in that episode. And what they do is there's a YouTube video where a family dances down an aisle. Do you know what the song is? Nico, by any chance? Uh, I believe it was Heaven. Okay. But I, I, I think I'm mistaken on that. Okay. Well, basically what happens is the characters, instead of doing the traditional wedding procession, the characters actually dance down the aisle. And in that scene, they show each of the characters, main characters of the show, which also do have very well-defined archetypes, walk down the aisle. And them dancing down the aisle kind of define their character and what they were all about very simply. And as I was watching that scene, I sat there and I said, they could end this show right here with those moments because it reminded us at its heart the reason why we watch The Office or any other TV show 
is it's because we love those characters. And that reminder made it feel like, okay, this is them at their happiest moment, and this is who they are. And now that we've got to see that and get that, it almost get it capped off, we can move on and we can say goodbye. And I think that Office episode, really through watching that, it taught me how to end a series in terms of a film trilogy or a TV series. And that worked perfectly because Toy Story 3 also did it in this film. With Andy going and as he gives away the toys to the little girl, he shows each toy to the girl, kind of in a show-and-tell fashion, and says, this is why I love this character. And they tugged at the reasons why we love the characters as much as Andy did. And so feeling that, it really got emotional, and it really made that scene somewhat of a tearjerker. I, I looked it up. It was Chris Brown's Forever okay. song was the name of the song, just for posterity's sake. That scene it, with Andy describing the toys, it really got me. I mean, it, because they wrote that scene so well, saying, this is why we love so-and-so. And it was great. It, it went back, and I said, this is why I enjoyed this character for the past 15 years of watching these films. The part that really got me was when Woody is just lying there in the box as the last toy, and the string gets pulled, and the little girl knows what Woody's going to say. And it tore me up. The reason why is my, my little brother, when Toy Story 2 came out, he was, he was four years old, and he just loved this movie. And I was so excited to take him to Toy Story 2 to introduce him to that world of Toy Story that I experienced when I was about seven or eight years old with the first film. And after he wanted, got out of there, he wanted a Woody doll with the pull string. And I remember my mom and I going just all over these stores to find the Woody doll. And I ended up was the one that found it. And I was so excited to give him that doll. And it was almost, it was a connection between him and I that existed through that doll. So when I saw Andy give it away and have it at the bottom of the box and all that, it really hit me hard. It hit me really emotionally. And I think everyone's had that connection. Maybe it wasn't an actual Woody doll, but it was a favorite toy or a favorite object or family member that they lost or had to give away or a friend that they moved away from or something like that. All those feelings and all those emotions came out of that scene. And it was great. And it really hit everybody. And I don't think a person could walk out of the theater not understanding what that feels like. Along those same lines, though, don't get me wrong, I love this film, but did you feel like the entire movie was just one long curtain call for these characters? And with that, did we, we or the characters learn any new lessons from this film? Essentially, the characters were get, got trapped and had to escape, similar to what they did in the previous two movies. And I, I loved that last scene, but also at the same time, I felt like it was a little bit forced, because we should already know why these characters are amazing and special, and we didn't really need Andy to tell us explicitly, at least for the older crowd, that that's true. You're mocking me, aren't you? Like I said in the beginning, I loved this film, but I did have a few issues with it, and this is just one of them. This is, yeah, go ahead and answer. No, this is the thing with that. I'd rather have it this way than it be bad. Okay. The other thing is, I know it's repetitive, but I think that's what a person would naturally do if okay. they were giving something that meant that much to them away. Yeah, I understood in a sense, but I kind of felt like it was an unnecessary device. Also, 
I don't believe we learned any new lessons in this movie. And unfortunately, I felt that Lotso, the main, the big bad, the main villain, yeah. was essentially the same character as Stinky Pete the Prospector in Toy Story 2. Guess that's why they call me Stinky Pete. <laughs> I felt, it felt a little recycled to me. And yeah. even Ed Beatty as Lotso sounds very similar to Kelsey Grammer as Stinky Pete. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I didn't think the villain aspect was very much so played up. I think I personally hated Lotso more. Because he threatened the toys' lives yes. at the end of the film. Where Stinky Pete, he wasn't, he didn't threaten anyone's life. He wasn't going to kill any toys. Okay. There was that. In terms of the lesson learned, I think it was Woody understanding that family is more important than Ego and Andy, and it was about letting go. Okay. And understanding that, and understanding that your job is to make kids happy, not just Andy. Good answer. That's what I felt like the lesson was. Sure. And it's a little more complex and it's a little bit, it's less, it's less universal than the themes of the other two films. But they had to do something. Because then again, it goes back to the, the reviews I read. They said, Toy Story 2 could have been the end of that series. And they're right. And it, it was the end of that series for a very long time. Because it, it addressed the two main universal themes. So when you come out with the three, it's just like you have to, you, there's not another universal theme. So you have to expand upon what was introduced in two. That's what I think they happened with that. Okay. And there's no other way to really end it. I mean, Andy had to give those toys to someone else, and we had to know that she was a caring character. We had to know he wasn't giving them to Sid. But it really helped us that it, that Woody was in Bonnie's room. So we got to experience that before they got given away. And we also got to introduce and get to know Bonnie as a character before they were given away. Because I think if that didn't happen, then it really would have felt stretched and extreme. Because you'd be like, well, how do we know this girl's going to be nice? There would have been a lot of plot holes left open. So I'm glad that Woody got out of Sunnydale for a while. That's Sunnydale. Sunnyside. Sunnyside. Sunnydale is a Buffy thing. But But, uh, I think the fact that he got out and we got to see that experience and we got to see it, that there were toys there that were very similar to the characters that we loved and were used to, then that worked, and that was fine. And going back, uh, just the end, I think just Andy describing all those characters was just a simple thing. Him just saying, okay, these toys are important to me, and this is kind of who they are and what they're all about. And in terms of my brother and sister, I remember when they were little kids, and I showed them something for the first time, I explained it to them very slowly in, in detail. So that's really what that was. And I think, honestly, that was a connection for the parents. John Lasseter, who is the big brains behind Toy Story, his pitch, his original pitch for Toy Story was about introducing his kids to his toys and giving them away. So it was kind of almost a throwback to where Pixar got started and where they started this journey of these three Toy Story films. And I think... In terms of Pixar and their audience watching this film, the, I mean, the people that have worked for them for 15 years, I bet it was a tearjerker for them because they have a much deeper connection than we even do with these characters. They made them, they brought them to life and made them successful. 
So that even had to hit them even more harder for than those of us who just grew up with these things. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I leveled some of my complaints for the, the film, but ultimately I loved this film. And this movie tugged on the, my heartstrings. And I don't know if you had a similar experience, but on the ride home from the theater, I couldn't help but think of some of my favorite toys as a child. And the emotional payoff at the end was totally worth it. And yeah. I didn't actually have tears, but I had that choked up feeling that you get right before you cry. And I felt that a lot of people were get, were affected the same way. Well, at least if you if you have a heart, you were anyway. I'm totally with you on that, a hundred percent. Sure. But at the end, Pixar seems to want to do this capper or this current call for many other of their franchises now, and that kind of goes into our final section. What's next for Pixar? What's next for Pixar is nothing original for at least four years. Right now, what's next, I think coming out next summer, is going to be Cars 2. And then they're going to follow that up with Monsters, Inc. 2. I don't know. I'm worried that Pixar, they've been rock solid all the way through. But I'm worried them getting this hardcore with sequels that they're eventually going to take a hit. And I think that hit's going to come with Cars. I think the first one was the weakest out of the series of Pixar films. It was very predictable. I knew it was going to happen. And there wasn't anything in it that surprised me, like many of their other films. There's always a moment in the rest of the Pixar films, maybe not so much Finding Nemo, even though I did enjoy that movie, but there's this moment where it's like, oh, hey, that's really creative, or I didn't think it was going to end this way. And I think Ratatouille had it. I think The Incredibles had it. I think a lot of their films had it. And Cars didn't have that. So I don't know how that's going to work out as a sequel. Monsters, Inc. 2, I think it's a great idea. I love that film. I think that's one of their most original ideas with the monsters needing screams for energy and all that. It's a great idea, and I want to go back into that world again. And Billy Crystal and John Goodman are really great together. Very much so looking forward to that movie that's going to come out two summers from now, 2012. But Cars, I'm not so sure about. So, Nico, where are you with the Pixar sequels? I absolutely agree about the Cars, too. I, I was not a big fan of Cars, to begin with, I waited till it came out on DVD. I was that uninterested when it, I saw the previews. Every single other Pixar film I've seen in the theater. Okay. No, I'm sorry. Ratatouille I saw on DVD as well. But that was purely a time constraint issue. Yeah. But I'm thinking Cars 2 is going to be a, the first flop for Pixar. It's still going to make gazillion dollars, but... It's not going to be of quality, and it's going to take a hit from the critics. And maybe the first chink in the armor of Pixar. Now, Monsters, Inc. 2, that sounds awesome. If they can get the original cast back together. I think it's pretty, pretty much locked. Okay, good. That would be interesting. I don't think a movie like Ratatouille or Wally or any of those films lend themselves to a sequel. Ratatouille, you could make it, but I think that's where Pixar might run into trouble, is when they start stretching for sequels. If if a movie has a a logical continuation of the story, then yeah, go ahead and explore it and, and make another film. But if it's a stretch to begin with, disaster is going to follow. Well, So I'm, I'm hoping they don't do that. They could essentially do a sequel with The Incredibles, 
But I feel like that's no different than all the other superhero sequels that are coming out. And I think Pixar likes to be more original with their stuff, just because yeah. we have so many of those sequels out there. I don't know if it's worth them taking the effort to do it when they may have to compete with the Avengers movie or the Justice League movie or Batman or Superman or whatever. It just That's not worth them wasting their time and manpower going there. I agree. We're going to move on to our next film, which was actually a surprise hit of the summer. I really, going into it, didn't think it was going to be as good as it was, the 18th. Based on the hit TV show in the 1980s, a group of Iraq War veterans, the A-Team, look to clear their names with the U.S. military who suspect the four men of committing a crime for which they were framed. And this movie, I thought it was really going to be a mindless action movie, and it didn't end up that way. The film's strength really did not come from action, per se. It came from its like witty dialogue and character development as well. I agreed. It was more of a... Almost a, a con man movie during certain portions of it, rather than a straightforward action film. And that's kind of harkens back to the TV show where they would run these cons on people. And I really enjoyed that rather than just being action packed. Exactly. And I think that's what audiences nowadays are looking for. I mean, look at the success of things like White Collar and Leverage. I think AT fit right in with that kind of aspect and went into that audience. Plus, the movie had Liam Neeson, who is just awesome. I don't know if you've seen Taken, but he's a complete, hard-ass, awesome, master planner guy who's just taking down the bad guys, and I think we got that a lot in this movie, and it was great that he was there, and we got to see kind of Liam Neeson doing his thing like he always does, and is very, very awesome at it. Yeah, I think people were a little confused or, or, or surprised to see him in a film like this. And Lee Neeson gives another spectacular performance and really steals the show for me. He really did. And he does that, I think he does that in every film. He's a very big standout part. I think he's one of the best parts of episode one, The Phantom Menace. Absolutely. Qui-Gon Jinn is one of my, one of my favorite Jedi teachers. Right. Throughout all six films, he's one of my favorite Jedi teachers. And I think he was probably considered amongst the Jedi one of the best of his era. I would agree strongly with that. And I like it how Liam Neeson, he's willing to do these big blockbuster films. He's really trying to do something different. And he puts his all into them. Some people might blow it off or laugh it off, but he was excellent in Batman Begins as the villain in that film. He was no Ledger. Heath Ledger is the Joker. That's a whole other entity in itself. But he was fantastic in that film. Great in Star Wars and also as well great in this. And he also had some great backup in this film. He has Bradley Cooper, who, who started The Hangover last summer, and he is becoming a huge breakout star. And I honestly think he could carry his, his own film by what I saw of him in this film. He had very much the wit and almost charm of Bruce Willis in Die Hard. And I would like to see him, I don't want to see him in a Die Hard remake, but I would like to see him in an action film similar to Die Hard. That would be really interesting to see. Absolutely. Bradley Cooper is quickly becoming one of my favorite new actors. And I agree that he, it, it's time for him to carry his own movie. However, 
I'd like to continue to see him in comedies, especially group comedies like The Hangover and Wedding Crashers, but I think he's earned the right to have his own film where he can be the star and carry the film. But I love seeing him in these group comedies. Now, should he be the lead character in a group comedy, or do you think he could just be by himself in something? I think both. Okay. I think throw him in as many movies as he could possibly do, because he's funny and enjoyable, and he's actually a decent actor. And I also heard he's very enjoyable to work with as well. I've heard similar things. And another breakout star in this film was, I think I may butcher his name a little bit, Charlotte Copley, who was also in District 9 and was excellent in that film as well. He was absolutely hilarious as Murdoch in this film. Every time he did something goofy on the screen or whatever, the, the theater was just rolling, and I was always laughing out loud. Absolutely. He was amazing in District 9. That was the first thing I'd ever seen him in or recognized him in. And he was hilarious in this film. The scene where, he, where we're introduced to him and he's pretending to be a doctor, absolutely hilarious. And then they break him out of, or remand him to his, their custody, and they go and jump on the chapter. And rather than just checking out the, uh, the rotating, what are they called? The rotator blades. We'll go Yeah, ahead. the blades. <laughs> he grabs onto him and spins it around and sings... You bring me right round, you right round, and like, it's just, and, and then he stops and he says, yeah, the rotators are fine, sir. <laughs> it was just great, and then throughout the whole film, he had probably the most, most funny line throughout the whole thing, and I think that was from the original series, Murdoch, was the kind of kooky, funny comedy relief to Hannibal being more serious and Face being funny, but still on mission. So, Burak is, is supposed to be the crazy guy, and I think absolutely not. And I think this kind of proved that Charlotte Copley, he could do a lot of different types of film. I would like to see him after the start of comedy. He really has that goofy, off-the-wall, sarcastic humor of Steve Carell, I thought, at Anchorman. And look at Steve Carell. He's starring in all these comedies and doing all this stuff. And I think Charlotte Copley could have a career doing that type of stuff, too. Absolutely. It's time for him to be... Well, he was the star in District 9, but he needs right. to... He could quite possibly be a star in a comedy, maybe even a new comedy with Bradley Cooper. Yes, I, I could see that happening. That's, that would that's, be amazing. That's a great call, and, and maybe they hit it off and they'll want to do that. But Charlotte Copley also seems, after his performance in District 9, someone capable of might possibly going after an Oscar or something like that. It's interesting to see where his career is going to go, but I think it has a bright future. I agree. With A-Team, Star Trek, I think, started this trend. When that movie came out, made by J.J. Abrams, I think it raised the bar on classic TV shows being remade into movies. I know we had a Beverly Hillbillies film several years ago that I think was god-awful. I watched it. I don't even remember that movie. We had Mission Impossible, those films, which are entertaining they're not the greatest thing, but I think Star Trek, when that came out, it really raised the bar. And I think what did that is utilizing television writing devices, which mainly were taking the time to develop the characters and things like that. Star Trek did it very well, and I think A-Team lived up to that bar that Star Trek started with the character development in these movies. And they did it by taking the time to introduce 
which mainly happened at the beginning. They had a scene with each of the characters and put their names up on the title screen so we could get them to know them easily. And then they really took the time throughout the movie to develop the characters and have each of them have a conflict that they had to deal with throughout the movie. You had B.A., he was dealing with kind of him taking a vow of peace, like he wasn't going to fight or attack anybody, which that came later on in the movie. You had Face not being able to go according to plan. And then you had Murdoch kind of, the whole thing with the insane asylum, him not being crazy when he was with the A-team. The group helped him deal with his kind of disability, I would say. And then Hannibal had his whole thing where it was like his honorable code was being questioned in that film and that there weren't soldiers like him that existed in the world anymore and he had to face that reality. So I think they did a great job of doing that development in the film. Yeah, also Hannibal had to take the back seat in the ultimate plan for the end and Face has to take over Hannibal's normal job of planning everything out and bringing it all together. And so that was a little bit of a, a disconnect with the, the original TV show, but also was great to see the, the characters developing, as you said, and moving out of their comfort zone for full characters. Right, exactly. And that's another thing that Star Trek did, was they made it, it was a remake, but they made it fresh and new by having those characters do things we hadn't seen them do before, or take them somewhat out of the box. And A-Team did that as well with, with their film. Another thing that they did that was interesting enough to push the character's development forward in a logical fashion is that they did time jumps. And an example of a time jump in terms of television is, if any of you have seen Battlestar Galactica, they did a three-year, I don't know if it was three years, it was like a couple-year time jump between season two and three to establish this idea that the people on Galactica settled down on a planet called New Caprica. And so season two ends with them going to settle on the planet, and season three begins with them already settled and everything established, and where the characters are at now established on that planet. And A-Team did it twice. They first did it, the opening scene is introducing the characters and kind of how they all met. Then there's a time jump to the moment where the government turns on them and they get framed. And then there's a time jump after they all bust out of jail. And that last time jump kind of puts the characters in different places, especially B.A., who basically takes a vow of peace. So I thought that was really great to push these characters forward and make them interesting as the movie goes on in a logical manner. It also made you feel like a TV show went on. Like they say in between the first time jump, that they went on 83 missions together. I don't know if this is for sure, but I think that was the number of episodes that the show actually had. You could easily see that if this was a TV show, each of those missions probably would have been an episode. And this movie, where it started out, was us meeting up with them after all those episodes had taken place. So I thought that was a really good move on their part, doing that decision. What did you think of the time jumps, Nico? I think they were effective. They they did exactly what you're saying. They allowed us to keep the story moving, but the characters to evolve over the time that we don't see. And so, like, the first time jump from Mexico to Iraq, 
was important because it solidified them as a team. You said 83 missions. There were actually 97 episodes in the original series. Okay. But we didn't need to see every single mission to know after that time jump that they were now a solid team and everybody worked together and loved, not loved, but respected each other and were friends and, and were a solid unit. And then the prison time jump, it was unnecessary for us to see them get acclimated to, to prison life. That would have been just boring. Rather, we needed to see them escaping prison. And t telling us it was six months later allowed us to understand just from our own experience seeing other prison films or something, some of the horrors that they may have gone through, some of the trials and tribulations that they had experienced, and not actually have to see them. And so I thought it was effective and moved the story forward without us getting lost in the details. Speaking of getting lost in details, I think the only weak point of the film, I think it was a period possibly of 30 minutes, in between the scene where they were at the skyscraper and B.A. kind of gets beat up because he's taking his vow of peace and the bad guy beats him up. And then the preparation for the final battle. That gap in there, I felt, was the weakest point of the movie because it focused much more on plot and the whole idea with the plates and how they were framed and the general that they looked to as their leader or their advisor betrayed them. He turned out to be the bad guy. I thought all that stuff was very, it was almost overly complicated and confusing. And it lost me a little bit. And I don't know if that was because I was looking for more of the witty banter that we had in the first probably hour and 15 minutes of the film and, and the, the nonstop action. And that 30 minutes didn't seem to have it there. And I did understand the bad guy's motivation, either, the guy with the CIA. I, it was just really overly complicated at, at that point. And when, when they went to the preparations for the final battle, it went back to the witty banter and the funny scenes, and they had that one scene in the airport where they were going through customs, and one was supposed to be this rally, and one was supposed to be like an African nationalist, and they ended up getting the wrong passports, so they had to play each other's roles, which was hilarious. And we got back to it, and then I enjoyed the movie again. But that 30 minutes, I wasn't sure what was going on there. Did you feel that way, Nico? I didn't. I did, I did not see that as a weakness in the film. I thought it was a necessary, in your sense, a necessary evil. But I thought it was necessary to move the plot forward and get us vested in the final battle for more than just rooting for the main characters, but actually see what they're fighting for or what the plot line is. And so it got us vested in the storyline in addition to just rooting for the main characters. So I liked it. It was a slower portion of the film, and I guess you could call that a weak spot in an action film, but I thought it was it made the story better in a sense that you got invested in, in more than just the four characters. You got invested in the whole plot line. Yeah, I just felt like a lot of it went over my head. Okay. And that might have just been seeing a movie for the first time. Sometimes you miss stuff, I think, when you go to the theater or something. Sure. I must have bowed my head down to get a drink or a popcorn or something, and it, I lost my train of focus, maybe, is what happened. Possibly. Or you just found it less interesting than I did. 
I really got sucked into the the whole betrayal by the general thing and and understanding why that drove them to this final battle and what they the, the insights they gleaned from those two encounters one finding out that the general was alive and that he was involved in their original framing and two that they were essentially almost blown up again by Lynch and that it was not just Pike that had betrayed them it was Lynch, Pike and Morrison or Morrissey right. whatever the general's name was so it evolved the conspiracy against them and kind of got them into the mode to go and, and fight to clear their names, just like we were getting ramped up to watch them fight to clear their names in the end. Okay. So so that's why I enjoyed it. Yeah, it makes a little bit more sense to me. I, I honestly think it was just, I don't know, I lost my train of thought or something like that when I was watching it. Sure. So that makes it feel a lot better. And, and I am definitely going to watch this one again, so maybe I'll, I'll get a hold of that better when next time I see it. The other thing about this, the end of it, it felt very much like the ending of a TV show pilot. It ended with, they're going to go off and do missions. And there could be a TV series. I mean, they're not going to do it, but there very easily could be a TV series that could come off the end of this movie. Because, yes, they somewhat did clear their names. At least Face got to clear his name with the girl he liked, Jessica Biel's character. But they still had issues to figure out. They still had to solve it. And so it really felt like almost the end of, I'd say, the Supernatural pilot, if anyone's seen that, where it's, this event happened, we're still not out of the woods yet, so let's get back on the road and let's go after this bad guy or let's go after what we need to do to clear our names. So I think in the aspect of that, it really was, it was almost set up for a sequel or another film or something else. Do you agree with that, Nico? I totally agree. It seemed that either this will lead to a series of movie sequels for the A-Team, or less likely, a new TV version of the series. I think the movie sequel idea is more likely in reality. I think that these these actors are too too big name to be tied into a, a huge TV series like this. It would be great, but I don't see it as likelihood. I do think we will see... More movies written in in this episodic form or using some of the TV writing techniques that you were talking about. But also, we've also begun to see more TV series that have a big-budget movie feel. And I think that that probably stems from many TV and movie writers crossing into the other form. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean TV writers are also writing for movies, and movie screenwriters are writing for TV, whether it's on an episodic, a single episode, or being brought into a series. We're seeing a lot more crossover, and I think that's great for both. Yes, I agree. You're going to see movies that really develop characters and pull us into it and really make us root for characters, like our our first discussion about Toy Story. TV writers have an advantage in that, that they have 13 episodes or 22 episodes a season to really get us vested in, in the characters, whereas that's essentially, for a drama, that's 22 hours of screen time or 13 hours of screen time. And... Film writers only have that two hours to get us hooked in, develop the plot, resolve the plot, and give us our branding. So I think 
we're going to see that crossover making both forms better. I totally agree with that. They're really crossing over a lot. There's people from all different varieties of media, not just TV and film. I know that's the two main ones, but you have people involved with video games coming in. You also have people involved with graphic novels and comic books coming in to do these yeah, things to set up this type of atmosphere where all the mediums are working together to put something together. So it's that seems to be where it's going. And really, the movies are being more structured so they're episodic, especially the blockbuster films that come out over the summer. I mean, this A-Team was structured where something's going to happen next and there's going to be another story kind of stem from this. The Marvel Comics movies are the ultimate example of this because they're making references to other films involving other Marvel characters and creating a whole universe. And I think if Marvel pulls this off correctly with the Avengers movie, I think that there may be more filmmakers or more people that work in the blockbuster realm that are going to try to create this aspect with other franchises and other things like that, where they're going to introduce a world and there's going to be characters that are going to spin off that world and offshoots and things like that that are going to be made into movies done and performed by different directors. And you're going to have a whole big conglomerate of people working to put something together like what Marvel Comics is doing right now. Yeah, I, I really like what Marvel's doing, and I'm hoping some of the other comic book series or DC might do the same thing, and we're going to see these universes, as you, as you said, kind of develop. And maybe we're going to see some crossover between things that are not comic books, but maybe right. relate somehow, and see some other merging or blur between some films, and that would be really amazing to see in the future as well. I think really, in terms of episodic, what's going to happen is that these sequels are going to feel like episodes of a TV series. Yeah. I just hope that doesn't degrade the quality, because Spider-Man 3 was made with that intention, and that didn't work very well. They just left a lot of things way too open, and it made it complicated. So... They still need to remember movie structure to make it tight and give us somewhat of an ending, but they also need to set it up so it's it's more open-ended, which is a tricky process, and it's hard to know how much to not explain and how much to leave open in a first or second film to set up for a third one or something like that. I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion, Nico. We're going to close things up for this week. Do you want to tell us what's coming up next week? Next week, our discussion will be on Avatar, The Last Airbender, which is a, a Nickelodeon anime series that is going to be turned into a feature-length film, hopefully a trilogy of them, but this summer we're seeing the first of that by M. Night Shyamalan, and we're going to discuss the anime series in preparation for the movie's release coming up around the 4th of July. And we're also going to have a special guest on next week. He... His name is Joel, and he is our, we're going to consider him across the airwaves, resident animated series expert. So we're going to bring him on, and he's going to add his insights to the show. And he's a really fun guy, and I think you guys will like him a lot coming in. Also, if you want to contact us in regards to any of our previous episodes or the episode today, if you've got anything you want to say about Toy Story or A-Team, feel free to post on our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. You can also email us. That's the best way to probably get your questions answered at 
acrosstheairways at gmail.com. You can also go on our Twitter and friend us there or tweet us. And there's a link to both our email address and the Twitter on our website. And you can also leave a voicemail for us about this episode or probably if there's anything regarding the Avatar animated series that you want us to talk about in next week's episode, feel free to leave us a voicemail and we'll maybe discuss your points or whatever you would like to talk about with Avatar on the air next week. And Nico, what's that number? That number is 773-809-3363. So please call that number. We haven't had a voicemail yet, but we'd love to hear from you. So jump on the phone and feel free to do that. And that's about it for this week. So once again, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rechtek. And until next week, we'll catch you on the airways. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.